0: So just so you know, the first service sounded really good when they were singing. I think you guys sounded just as good, if not even a little bit better on that one. So y'all sounded great. And, and, and I also bragged on the orchestra in that first service. And I want to say it again. You guys did a wonderful job this morning. Thank you so much for leading us in worship. Will, for all of the, the effort that you put into that. And we are so appreciative of that. It is good to see all of you here this morning. If you brought your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you did, would you please take them? And turn with me to Mark's Gospel, the first chapter. Mark chapter 1. If you were with us last week, you know we introduced a new sermon series that we're going to be in for quite some time. Going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to go through all of the different chapters there. And it's going to take us quite a while. But as I gave sort of an overview and a flyover of, of that book last week... It really dawned on me as I was preparing for that sermon that Mark really is attempting to push us to three questions that he wants us to continually ask ourselves. And we talked about those questions last week. The first question simply is this, who is Jesus? And as we continue to go through these first few chapters, you're going to come back to that question a lot. Who is Jesus? And if you'll recall that back in in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus asked that question, "Who who do men say that I am? And then he turned the question back on the disciples and said, who do you? say that I am. And and Peter answered that question by saying, you are the Christ. And so Peter answered that question correctly, telling, telling Jesus that you are the Messiah. So that leads us to the second question that Mark's gospel constantly draws us to is what kind of Messiah is Jesus? If if he is the Christ, then what kind of Christ is he? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? And what we began to understand is that Jesus is a Messiah. He is one who gives his life as a ransom. For many, he's the one who came to serve those that he came to save. And so we are we are confronted with that image. And it's a completely different kind of image than probably what a Messiah was that the Jews were looking for. And yet that, that image is something that, that draws us to another question. And really this is the question that we have to ask of ourselves. Because if Jesus is who he is, if he truly is the Messiah, if he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, And if he truly did come to to seek and to save those which were lost by serving, by giving his life as a ransom for them, then the third question we have to ask ourselves is what difference does that make? What difference does it make to your life? What difference does it make to my life? What difference does it make in the life of this church? We know that it must make a difference because we also recognize that you can't come into contact with this Jesus of this scripture and go away the same as you came to him. Your life will be changed in one way, shape or form. And what we learned about him is that if he truly is that Messiah, then he has the authority to make every claim upon your life and upon my life. As we study through this book of Mark, I want you to know that those questions, those same questions—Who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? And what difference does that make in our lives? We're never going to get too far from those three questions. They're going to come up again and again and again. Now, this morning, I want us to go back to the very beginning of Mark's gospel. I want us to go back to chapter one, and I want us to look at the very first words that Mark writes to us as he introduces Jesus to us. And And what we're going to see this morning is I believe that Mark intends to make a lasting first impression upon us. You know, no doubt you've heard that phrase, you only get one opportunity to make a first impression, so make it a good one. You've you've heard that. Or you've you've heard something along the lines of first impressions are, are lasting impressions. Well, I don't know that Mark knew that kind of terminology, but I have every idea that he understood the sentiment behind it. He understood the truth that was behind those words and those, those phrases. You see, what we will find is at the very outset of his gospel, Mark, with carefully chosen words, places the message of his entire book in front of us in a very concentrated form. And then with carefully chosen details about carefully chosen people and events, Mark begins to tell us how that message unfolded. And so, That's what we're going to read about this morning. And so I want to let Mark make his first impression upon you as we begin reading in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 of Mark's gospel begins this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then he says this. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts And wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. For the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Fathers, we come before you this morning. We are thankful that we have your holy book to be able to open up, to read, and to study. We pray that you would grant to us that which we do not have, and that is the knowledge and the understanding of this text. We pray that as you grant us knowledge and understanding, that you will also grant to us the ability to apply its truth to our lives, that we might be changed people, that we might leave this place different from the way that we came in it. And that that difference would be recognized by the fact that we are living obedient lives. That you've changed us. You've called us to be your children. And I pray that today, that as we come away from this text in our time of studying, that that would be more evident in our lives as we leave. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you probably noticed, Mark's gospel begins with a beginning. And that's always good, right? It's always good when a book begins with a beginning. And he begins with a beginning here. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, by writing that, Mark really provides us with a statement that I believe gives us a a description. It sort of serves as a title for everything else that he's going to write about to us. You see, understand when Mark sat down to write out his gospel account, he didn't sit down with a piece of parchment on his desk and with a pen take and start writing at the very top, I think I'm going to write the gospel according to Mark. That was not the title. That, That was something that was applied to what Mark wrote at a much later time by someone else. But nevertheless, Mark did want to give his readers an understanding of what it was that he intended to write about. And so that's why he communicates to us in verse 1. You'll notice there is no verb in that verse. It's strictly a statement that says what's coming. And he says it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But I would submit this to you. What is regarded as the beginning of the gospel really depends upon what one means by the word gospel. You see, the Greek word that is translated as gospel there is the Greek word euangelion. That's really where we get our word evangel. From that word, or evangelism comes from that word in Greek, and what it means is the good news. But I don't want you to think that that was strictly a biblical word. We talk about it today like the only gospel there is is here, but the Romans used that word in their everyday language. As a matter of fact, the Roman culture would use the Evangelion, they would use the gospel as a way of announcing the joyful tidings that were associated with the birth of an emperor. When when an emperor would ascend to the throne, they would go back and proclaim how wonderful good news it was the day that he had been born however many years earlier. Because because of his birth, many lives had been changed throughout the kingdom. And so the word gospel for the Romans would have been a word that was very retrospective. In other words, it looked back to a joyous event that had already taken place. But for Jews... And for those who were familiar with the Old Testament, the gospel or the good news there was concerned more with something that would take place in the future. See, the prophets, when they wrote about the good news in the gospel, they wrote about something that would happen later. They talked about when the Messiah would come, that he would usher in a kingdom of future salvation. And and to them, then, the the gospel involved a proclamation that was strictly and distinctly forward-looking. Well, by the time that Mark writes what he writes here in his gospel, then he takes both senses of the word. He takes both the fact that it's retrospective and forward-looking and combines that together because by the time that he uses it, he recognizes that a proclamation of the gospel is a, a proclamation of the good news of God's plan of salvation as made known and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Consequently, that gospel had a a retrospective look back to the life of Christ, that he had come and that he had come to change everything, but it also had a forward-looking element to it. He recognized that the kingdom he came to inaugurate and the salvation he came to provide was still yet to be fully realized. Consequently, for Mark, when he took his pen and he began to write here and he wrote the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he did so recognizing that that proclamation of that good news was rooted in the past, but it had lasting effects well on into the future and into eternity. And so consequently, that proclamation was something that needed to be taken to the ends of the earth and all the way to the end of time. So this is how Mark introduces his gospel. And, and he gives us these first three little scenes, what I call vignettes. They're scenes that he, he paints for us here in the first 13 verses of his book, and, and, and I really want us to examine what does the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entail? What is entailed in that beginning? Because I believe Mark would have us to understand that. These three carefully chosen scenes are all united by the fact that they all occur out in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, I believe that's the carefully chosen word that he uses there to make sure we know that this is a, this is a, a unit in and of itself. In fact, verse 4 tells you that that John the Baptist came into the wilderness and it was there that he preached the the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then later down in verse 9, you'll find that Jesus went and joined John out there in the wilderness area, though it, that word is not used, the locale didn't change. So Jesus is now out in that wilderness area and it is there that he's baptized. But immediately following his baptism, beginning in verse uh, uh, 12, you find that, that the scene changes again. And then Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit even deeper into the wilderness. And so that, that term there seems to unite this entire section together. And so he strategically connected these opening scenes together to tell us, I believe, something important about what the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entails. And I want us to examine that this morning. So the first point on your outline, I've attempted to try to answer that question, is this. The first point that I want you to see today is this. The beginning of the gospel entailed preparation and proclamation. Preparation and proclamation. You'll notice that Mark starts by quoting from The prophets. Many of your versions actually identify Isaiah, the prophet, who is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. But you'll also note that Malachi is, is quoted here as well in this opening section. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God promised that he would send a messenger to the people before the coming of the Messiah who, who would, had the task of preparing the way for the Messiah. And then likewise, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, we're given a further description of what that messenger would be like. He was a voice of one who cries in the wilderness, Isaiah says. And that message that he would cry out would be this, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Consequently, Mark then identifies John the Baptist as that voice that's crying out in the wilderness. He, he identifies, he connects John's ministry with the ministry of that of preparing the way of the Lord. You might be interested in knowing that in ancient times when the king would would travel throughout his kingdom, he would often send someone in front of him to do two specific things. That person was called a forerunner, and his responsibility was to go throughout the kingdom and clear the path for the king. When the king traveled throughout his kingdom, he was to have a clear path made for him. He was not to have any intrusions or obstructions in his way. The second thing that the forerunner was to do was to call upon the people in the kingdom to be prepared, to make themselves ready for the coming of the king. They needed to be ready for him when he got there. That was the job of the forerunner. Well, that was John the Baptist's job. In fact, it was not only his job, it was what he was born to do. You might remember that when when the angel of the Lord came and spoke to Zacharias, John's father, in Luke chapter 1, You might remember that the angel said this to Zacharias. He says, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And then he says this, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So that was John's role. It was was his God-given role even before he was born that he would be the forerunner to make way, to prepare the way for the Lord. I like how William Lane has expressed it in his commentary on this passage. He said, In retrospect, John the Baptist's appearance in the wilderness was the most important event in the life of Israel for more than 300 years. The very fact... Of John's appearance, he says, was an eschatological event of the first magnitude and it signified the decisive turning point in the history of salvation that it was at hand. So what we see in this first scene is that the beginning of the gospel entails preparation. The question that we need to ask is, how did John prepare? How did he get the people prepared for the coming of the Messiah? Well, as his name suggests and as his practice suggests... John prepared the people by calling on them to repent and be baptized because the Lord the King was coming. John's role of preparation then involved proclamation. In fact, look at verse 4 once more because there it says that John came preaching. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Listen, John's message was a message of confrontation. He called for repentance. He he confronted people with their sin and then he called on them to repent of their sin, to turn from it. That's what repentance actually means. It means to turn and go the other direction. It means to have a changed mind which results in changed actions. And effectively what John preached was is that that they needed to do that. They needed to turn from their wickedness and their sin because the king was coming. The Savior was on His way. And because that was true, the people needed to straighten out their crooked lives. They needed to turn from their sin. And such repentance, he said, would lead to the remission of sins. That word remission means forgiveness. It means pardon. It means to have the penalty of sin removed. And this is what John the Baptist preached to the people. And I want you to notice how wildly popular His message was. It says there in verse 5 that all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him. Here's what we recognize. John's proclamation involved not just preaching, but it involved practice as well. John's practice was to baptize people who were willing to repent of their sins. Now, let me be clear here. John was not baptizing people so that their sins would be forgiven. Baptism was not the means by which a person's guilt of sin was removed. Rather, John's baptism was practiced by people who were immersed in the Jordan River in order to symbolically show that their sins had been washed away. And it was to give a public declaration that their lives had been washed changed by the power of God. So John's preparation for the Messiah involved proclamation, which included the exposing of his hearers' hearts to the sins that they were guilty of, calling them to turn from those sins, and then it involved the symbolic washing away of those sins by being baptized. Mark also describes just how unique John the Baptist was. I find it interesting there in verse 6, he describes the attire that John wore. He was dressed in, in, in camel's hair and he had a leather belt around him and, and that he ate locusts and wild honey. And, and really, I think the reason that, that Mark includes that, that information there is because it just shows how much John the Baptist would have stood out from all of his contemporaries. He would have looked in a, a completely different from the others who, were, who would have been around doing things, preaching and, and, and proclaiming things to the people at that time. And and listen, as the crowds made known, they flocked to him. He was a magnet to many of them that would come out. He was a very popular figure. In fact, in, in, in first century historical records, more is written about John the Baptist than about Jesus. He made that kind of impression, that kind of impact upon his culture. Nevertheless, in spite of all of that, we realize that he never let his own popularity go to his head. In fact, according to verses 7 and 8, John proclaimed that the dignity and the power and the authority of the coming Messiah would far outstrip and overshadow any that he had. John even says this. He says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In effect, John says this, compared to the one who is coming, I am a nobody. I'm not even worthy to get down and untie a chute. That was a job that was left for the the most menial task for the lowest of low in the kingdom. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. You want to know why? Because I'm nothing. He is everything. My goal isn't to attract people to me. My goal is to point people to Him. So what we realize in this first scene that Mark relates to us is that the beginning of the gospel entails the preparation and the proclamation of John the Baptist. It it entails repenting of sins in order to receive forgiveness. It entails publicly identifying oneself as having been forgiven. And it entails realizing that when it comes to comparisons, when it comes to, to, to who you and I compare ourselves to, the standard is not that you compare yourselves with others who are out there like yourself. It's not your contemporaries to whom you compare yourself, but rather it is to Christ. And brothers and sisters, when we compare ourselves to Him, none of us can stand. None of us can boast. None of us can poke our chests out and say, look at me. I like how one author has put it. The people were flocking to John. He had had the ear of a nation. He had the people eating out of his hand. When he saw Jesus, John saw how needy he was. He knew that he was nothing and that Jesus was everything. Friend, when you reach that point, you will have come to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That leads me to look at the second scene that Mark records for us here. It's a scene where Jesus actually shows up in the wilderness... He shows up there at the Jordan River where John was baptizing and preaching that that message that he preached. And, And based upon what Mark says here, we see the second point that I want you to note this morning, the next couple of things that the beginning of the gospel entails. Notice the second point on your outline. It's this. The beginning of the gospel entailed validation and inauguration. Validation and inauguration. Perhaps you noticed as we read through these verses, Mark doesn't spend as much detail and time describing everything that took place there as do Matthew and Luke. There's, there's differences between these accounts. And that doesn't mean, though, that Mark intended to, to play down this event. In fact, I would even go the other direction and say by the brevity of what Mark writes here, he actually draws more attention to it in some ways. In verse 9, Mark records in unvarnished terms that Jesus was baptized by John. But then beginning in verse 10, Mark points out something that he really wanted to communicate. He says, immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting or being ripped open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now what we understand is that that voice that came from heaven was was that of God the Father, who was assuring Jesus of his approval. It was was validation that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Furthermore, we read that when the heavens were ripped open, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. And in that moment, I don't know if you picked up on that, but in that moment, you have all three members of the Holy Trinity together. You have Jesus in bodily form there standing in the Jordan River. You have the dove descending upon him, the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and you have the voice of the Father echoing through the heavens. And in that moment... The pleasure of the Father accompanied by the indwelling Spirit of God gave validation to the ministry and the mission that Jesus had come to perform. But if we understand baptism the way that I explained it earlier, if baptism is something that symbolically displays that we have have repented of our sins and we have turned from them and that we have received forgiveness of those sins and those sins have been washed away, the penalty of which has been washed away. And if that's what baptism symbolized, we might question, why did Jesus ever go down into the water? He lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. What did he need to repent of? What what remission of sins did he need? The fact of the matter is, if he's God, if the Spirit of God is upon him and, and, and God the Father is pleased with him, then we know. He was not in need of being baptized. So why why did this take place? Well, here's where we recognize that Jesus' baptism actually inaugurated him into the ministry that would reach its ultimate fulfillment when he was baptized in blood on the cross. You see, as Sinclair Ferguson has put it, Jesus entered those waters of baptism in order to publicly acknowledge that he had come to stand where sinners should stand receive what they should deserve and in return give to them his gift of grace and fellowship with God. In other words, though he had no personal need of being baptized, he did so in order to identify himself with sinful humanity who needed to have their sins washed away. He stood where sinners stood, knowing that one day he would die in our place so that we could receive forgiveness of the sins that we so desperately need and that we might be called sons and daughters of God. You see, the fact that God the Father attested that He was His Son in whom He was well pleased, then when Jesus did for us what He did, it allows us to be called sons and daughters of God as well. And as we read earlier, that became the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark wants us to know that at the beginning of this gospel, it tells us that Jesus Christ came to identify with sinners so that He could be our Savior. The third and final scene that Mark records for us occurring in the wilderness is found where Jesus is driven. He is, he's compelled. He's, he's sent out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. And by including this scene... He tells us one other thing that we need to know about the beginning of the gospel. And note the third point on your outline this morning. The beginning of the gospel entails this, temptation and dedication. Temptation and dedication. Now, having read what Mark has written up to this point, we might be surprised, we should be surprised at least a little bit, that... that as soon as Jesus comes up from the water and the, the Spirit of God lights upon him and indwells him, that the very first thing that happens is that that Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That word, the word to drive out there, doesn't mean that he just asked him to go. It's, it's the word ekabalo in, in Greek, and really that word means to throw. It means to to push out. It means to get away. And so, really, that's what it means. The Spirit pushed Jesus out into the deserted regions of the wilderness in order that he be tempted. And and, and the why is really the most intriguing thing to be tempted, to to face the onslaught of Satan's temptation. Notice further the when. It was immediate, it happened immediately after he came through, there was no lag in the action. It happened immediately following His inauguration. As one has noted, one moment Jesus was hearing the approval of the Father, receiving the anointing of the Spirit, and confirming the acceptance of His mission. The next moment, He finds Himself being compelled to go into this time of temptation. So the question that we may ask is, how does our Lord's temptation relate to the beginning of the gospel? Why is this an important scene? Once again, let me point out that if you go to Matthew chapter 4 and you go to Luke chapter 4, you will find the temptations that Jesus faced at the hands of Satan related to you in much greater detail. They give a lot more information with regard to what Jesus underwent. Mark gives us just the simplest of terms and the simplest of words. And I would encourage you to go and look and read those passages and study them on your own because they have great wisdom and great things to teach us. But Mark has a reason for why he just wants to get to the facts. But I also want you to notice this. Mark includes something that both Matthew and Luke do not include. Mark tells us that when Jesus was driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, that he was also with the wild beasts. That's that's an information tidbit that Matthew and Luke do not give to us. And since Mark has been intent on communicating about the beginning of the gospel, what does Jesus' presence among the wild beast in the wilderness while being tempted by Satan tell us? Well, certainly one primary aspect of the gospel that we have to know is this, is that Jesus came to undo the curse that had been brought on humanity by Adam's rebellion in the garden. You see, the Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans 5, verse 12. He tells us that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death. And death spread to everyone because he sinned. That was the curse that was brought upon humanity. But we also learn from what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus Christ came to be the second Adam. He came to be the one who would reverse the effects of the fall and break the curse. And if we were to go back to Genesis this morning and read, we would find that Adam faced Satan's attack while he lived in paradise. He lived in the Garden of Eden. In paradise, the animals all lived in harmony under his domain. He was actually the one who named them. They all lived under his dominion. And what we realize is that Adam lived under the most sublime conditions. but Even though that was the case, those were the same conditions under which Adam failed. He sinned. Sin's curse fell upon all of creation. But when Mark tells us that Jesus faced the temptation of Satan, it was not under sublime conditions of harmony and perfection. In fact, Jesus was out in the desert regions surrounded by wild beasts, Jesus faced the most extreme temptations that Satan could throw at him, not in paradise, but rather in a fallen, broken, sinful, and disintegrating world. And though Mark doesn't say so specifically, we know that because of what we continue to read, that Jesus was victorious, that he triumphed over Satan. And so what we begin to see is that because of what we read about the devil and because of what we read about the wild beasts and then also the angels who ministered to him there, all of them testify then that Jesus is the beloved son who was dedicated to undo the effects of sin's curse and provide salvation to all those who would follow him. And in that, you and I have hope. And we have have hope not only for now, but we have hope for the future. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Because he was such a high priest who was tempted in all ways just as you and I are tempted, yet without sin, you and I can then go boldly to the throne of God and asking for help in our time of need. So Mark here in these three opening vignettes has given us an account of what the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, actually entailed. And what we've learned is that the beginning of the gospel entailed preparation and proclamation. It it entailed validation and inauguration. And it entailed the whole idea of being tempted and being dedicated. Temptation and dedication. And when we consider all those concepts together, we have to come away with a realization that that was not given to us just so that we could walk out and be the same that we were when we came in. It was not something that he wrote to us just for informational purposes, but he wrote it so that we might be impacted by its truth. And so this morning I've attempted to try to put all of that together and distill it down into a sentence that might help us understand what the import of this entire issue is. And this is what I would say. You see, an investigation into what the beginning of the gospel entails drives us to understand that just as those first century sinners, we too are called to prepare our hearts for the good news of God's salvation offered through Jesus Christ by repenting of our sin and trusting in God's perfect Son who identified Himself with sinners so that He might redeem us, restore us, and give us hope. Here's the best news that I, of all that I could ever give to you. God is the God of new beginnings. Just as Mark has identified for us the beginning of the gospel this morning, we are encouraged that God begins again with His people, by sending His Son. And He offers each one of us a new beginning through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as well. My responsibility is to call out to you to prepare yourselves, to, to make yourselves ready, not for the coming of the Messiah, but for His return. Because you see, the very Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross, He also was buried, but He rose again on the third day, and He ascended to the right hand of the Father, where He now waits to return to gather up all who are His to bring them home to be with Him. And one day He has promised that He will return in power and in glory. And friends, we must be prepared for that day. We must be prepared for His return. And we prepare ourselves by turning from our sin, trusting in the only one who can save us, Scriptures teach us that there is only one name under heaven by which we can be saved. There is only one man who is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And So he is the Son of God and he is also the Son of Man who identified himself with sinners just like you and me, that we might have hope, that we might have restoration, that we might have redemption. Brothers and sisters, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.